Our text today is in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. <clears throat> After writing the address and greeting, and Peter did, he expresses his gratitude to God for the new life God has given us, which he describes for us in verses 3 through 5, which we talked about last time in, in our talk in 1 Peter. This new life is an incorruptible inheritance, which is kept in heaven for us and will be revealed fully at the end of time. Although we endure all kinds of trials and tribulations, we nevertheless are filled with joy. That's what Peter's talking about in this reference. That's why I've entitled this message, A Joyous Salvation. Going through trials and coming out the other side, realizing that our faith is stronger and our joy is, is sure. Our text, we can begin reading in First Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. One six. In this you greatly rejoice. To what does the word this refer? Good question, right? In this refers to the joy of salvation kept in heaven for you. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. The pronoun this relates to the experience of rebirth and the anticipation of salvation. The main verb is a present in indicative. That is, as a declarative statement in this, you greatly rejoice. We saw this in verse 3 where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Greatly rejoice. Agaliaho in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, obviously, but the Greek has it as a present imperative. Greatly rejoice. In uh, joy is mentioned and is the main emphasis of this passage. It's used 183 times in 170 verses in the New American Standard Bible. So this is a word that the Holy Spirit wants to make, fully, make you fully aware of. It's not something that's a minor issue. In his first epistle, Peter mentions joy three times. He does this to encourage his readers who are experiencing suffering and persecution. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. First Peter 4.13, the sufferings of this that they endure are insignificant when compared with the joy they will experience at the end of time. Salvation and joy belong together. Being made right with God is cause for joy. Like in the parable of the prodigal son, it's a parable that represents salvation. The lost son is found. You know the story. Luke 15, verse 22. 
In the story of the lost son who was found, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and be merry for this son of mine was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. And now when the older son was in the field and he came to the house, he heard music and dancing. There was tremendous joy. That's a point that the Holy Spirit wants you to, to notice. I want you to notice that salvation and celebration go together. Salvation and joy belong together. Being made right with God is cause for joy. Joy on the part of God, joy on the part of Christ, joy on the part of the angels, joy on the part of the church, joy on the part of the one who is redeemed. A chief joy of a good Christian arises from things spiritual and heavenly, from his relation to God and to heaven. In these, every sound Christian greatly rejoices. His joy arises from his treasure, which consists of matters of great value, and the title of them is sure. 1.6b, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. This is the first time that Peter mentions the word distressed. James 1.2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can encounter various trials. The verb is in the past tense and undoubtedly relates to a particular incident that caused grief and suffering for the believers in Peter's day. Remember, this was a time when Nero had burned Rome in 63 AD, and he blamed it on the Christians, and they were suffering unjustly for their faith. This is really putting it mildly by comparison because many of the Christians were actually being persecuted and, and put to death for their faith. In our day, which is, as you know, changing moment by moment, it seems like, one of the latest surveys, the, the persecution of Christians is now at the highest level in 2016 than, than was at the time when Jesus walked the earth, with an estimated 300,000 Christians a year in Muslim and um, communist countries being martyred for their faith. Just think about that, 300,000 a year. It's an irrefutable fact that communist and radical Muslims hate Christians and would like to silence, convert, or eradicate them. This isn't really that far away, as we all know. The similarities of this trial were happening in Peter's day and what is taking place in our day are astounding. The Holy Spirit is fresh when he wrote the words of Scripture and in our day as well. Peter 4.13 says, But to, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may re rejoice with exaltation. 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, and our life here on earth is a little while, but in comparison to eternity, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Although the exact time and duration of suffering are not known, 
this period of suffering is brief in relation to eternity. If necessary, Peter tells us that the unspoken conclusion is that our trials are necessary. The ordeal of suffering is necessary in accordance with God's purpose. Peter firmly believed in the reality of God's sovereign presence in the lives of his people. The trials which the believers experience come from God's hand. They're not just by our happenstance or by our flesh. These trials, in whatever form they they appear, are ordained by God. Sometimes Christians imagine that trials and temptations are our present lot, and there's really nothing else that we can do about them. Peter here tells us that there is a if necessary, not only for the various trials, but also for being distress itself in the midst of the trial. God has a purpose not only for the trial, but also for the heavy grief and stress that we feel when we're in the middle of the trial. We need to turn our faith into trust. We need to turn our faith into trust. Trust is one of the main reasons for our trials. They force us sometimes with no other option to trust in God, which is what he is waiting for in the first place. If we'd only just get on the stick and come along with God's plan. He has a way of encouraging us to follow his will, even though we are timid in allowing the trials to come. Please, Lord, give me your blessing, but don't let me go through this trial. (laughs) When we pray for his will to be done in our lives, he helps us follow his will in spite of ourselves. Thank you, Lord. Trials strengthen our weaknesses. Trusting is developed by testing. Therefore, we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. One seven, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Gold is a standard. It is one of the most durable of all materials. It is a standard that we use to measure purity and wealth. It is a measure by which nations value their economic strength. There is no finer standard to define what is excellent. We measure the value of gold by comparing it to other things. Gold gold has value because it's rare and has a market. If any of those things decline, the value plunges. Gold is a good candidate for storing value because it is rare. It's not easily counterfeited. It's divisible and it's portable. Contrast this with your favorite currency. Money can be printed up almost at will. Peter uses gold as a picture of comparison of the value of our faith. He points out that our faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. There is no more important measure that he could compare to than gold, yet he called it perishable. Scripture says that gold will rust. That puts a different perspective on gold. If it eventually rusts, what value is it? In comparison to our faith, Peter or the Holy Spirit is telling us in giant letters just how valuable our faith really is. It is priceless. 
Faith more precious than gold. God has a great and important purpose in testing our faith. Faith is tested to show that it is sincere faith or true faith. Faith is tested to show us the strength of our faith. James 5.3 says, Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Faith tested by fire, like gold is tested, purified by fire. Our faith isn't tested because God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith we have. Our faith is tested because we often are ignorant of what faith we have, what kind of faith we have, and, what, and how much faith we have. God's purpose in testing us is to display the enduring quality of our faith to us. God has so much more in store for us than we can imagine, and he wants to encourage us by showing us what kind of faith we really have in him. The best way to do that is show us by testing us and letting us see for ourselves the faith that God himself has instilled in us. Let me say that again. The best way to do that is to show us by testing us and let us see for ourselves the faith that God himself has, has instilled in us. In our last session on 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we discovered that God gives us the faith as a gift so that we could choose him. Now, in the next few verses, he wants to show us what faith he has given us so that we can be tested by it and and come through the test. This is an all-loving God caring so much for us that he takes the time and patience to help us become more like him. What an awesome God we serve. The trials God ordains in our lives aren't to destroy us, but to prove our worth. The, <clears throat> the trials are important to our Christian development. Spurgeon, a well-known pastor, theologian, who had preached nearly 3,600 sermons in his lifetime and published 49 volumes of commentaries, put it this way, quote, Indeed, it is the honor of faith to be tried. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I have never had to believe under difficulties? Who knows whether you have faith? Shall a man say, I have great faith in God, but I have never had to use it in anything more than the ordinary affairs of life, where I could probably have done without it as well as with it? Is this to the honor and praise of your faith? Do you think that such a faith as this will bring any great glory to God or bring to you any great reward? If so, you are mightily mistaken, unquote, Spurgeon. Peter is saying our faith is not perishable. It is firm and strong, even though it is tested. 118, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers even though tested by fire 1 7 whereas james writes that the testing of your faith develops perseverance james 1 3 peter compares this testing to the process by which gold is refined throughout the centuries 
gold has been treasured as a precious and stable commodity. This highly prized metal is mentioned 385 times in the Bible, more often than any other metal. Gold serves as a standard in determining monetary transactions. Peter wanted to make this point clear when he compared faith to gold. Faith is tested to show that it is a sincere faith or true faith. Faith is tested to show the strength of faith. It is tested to purify it, to burn away the dross from the gold. What a wonderful word picture the Holy Spirit is using for us to understand how powerful our faith is by comparing it to gold. What an encouraging thought to know that he is making us more like him. Gold is one of the most durable of all metals, yet it too one day will perish, but our faith will not. If gold is purified by fire, then how much more our faith should be tested? God has a great and important purpose in testing our faith. Faith is refined in the crucible of man's trials. Faith is God's gift to man. Faith excels gold because it originates where? Not on earth, but in heaven. It is a gift of God. Faith is everlasting. Corey ten Boom, one of the family members that hid Jews in their attic in the, uh, until the Nazis caught them and sent them to Auschwitz prison camp, had this to say about faith. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, receives the impossible. By contrast, gold eventually perishes through use or abuse. The precious metal is refined by fire so that all the impurities are removed and only 24 carat of pure gold remains. Peter, however, observes that even though gold is refined by fire, it perishes. The obvious implication of the comparison is that if perishable gold is purified, how much more should abiding faith be tested in the life of the Christian? The testing God allows in our lives aren't to destroy us, but to prove our worth. The testings are important to our Christian development. The believer expresses true faith by completely trusting God. He knows that God will meet all his needs according to his riches and glory in, in Jesus Christ. Gold is a monetary standard among the nations to the world and serves to determine the values of currencies. The value of gold, however, is set by world markets. That is, man determines the price or the value of gold. There's a reason for testing our faith. And that is in 1 Peter 1, 9. It says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What an awesome uh, conclusion. By comparison, faith, which is more precious than gold, originates not in the minds of heaven, not, not in minds of earth, but in heaven. Faith is refined in the crucible of man's desires and man's trials. What else is there to say the goal of our faith is salvation? Listen carefully to this and 
James 1, 4, it says, and let endurance or testing have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We have an option here. It says let endurance or let testing have its full effect. It says that we're able to thwart or stop what God is doing in our lives, but not allowing his testing to take place. Have you ever had to go through the same trial more than once? It could be that you stop the testing the first time around and God is patient and offering you another opportunity to complete what he wanted to accomplish in the first place. James says, let it have its full effect. Don't try to squirm out of it. <laughs> 17b, may be found to the, re to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of your faith is the return of Jesus and the ultimate salvation of your souls. Testing and trials are inevitable as long as we are on this side of the end of our faith. We have faith until we die and our faith ends. At that point, we go to heaven if we believe in Jesus Christ. As long as we do not see the God we serve, we must endure through trials and face them with faith and joy. Here's maybe a interesting or different concept the, the praise and glory and honor in this passage has to do with you god gives you praise and glory and honor through the trials god grows our faith that he gives us as a result god wants to give us praise and give us glory and give us honor at the end of our faith not while we're here on earth but at the end of our faith in other words, God grants to you praise. God grants, wants to grant to you glory. God wants to grant to you honor. does not say here that it will result in us praising, glorifying, and honoring him, but that we may be found because of our faith worthy of praise, worthy of glory, and worthy of honor when Jesus comes. The believer shall share in heavenly glory and honor when at the end of his earthly life he enters the presence of Jesus Christ. That's incredible to think about. Imagine that we will one day see the Lord and receive from him praise. It's incredible. That, but that is what Peter is saying here. 1 Peter 2.20 If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Isn't it wonderful to know that you can have favor with God? Romans 2.29 says, And his praise is not from men, but from God. True faith receives praise from God. True faith is a gift from God. He gives it to us and then praises us for it. This is not typical reasoning from man. If man gives something to another man, Traditionally, he may expect thanks from the one given. God's reasoning is that he gives faith and then praises us for having it. He gives praise to us and then praises us for having praise to him. He is so worthy of everything perfect that he is willing to give us what we lack and then receive the praise that he gave us to give to him. Hallelujah. The second term that Peter uses is glory, praise and glory. Once again, 
has in reference here the glory that we receive. This is contrary to what one might think. Some scholars believe that it is the other way around, that we are giving praise to God, which, of course, we will do also. But it seems clear that God wants to give us glory. Listen to Romans 2.7. It says, To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. Implied, God will grant eternal life. In other words, he's, tell, he's talking about believers, and he says it is the pursuit of believers to seek glory and honor and immortality. And again, God's going to give us the glory. By persevering in God-glorifying deeds, they are aiming to obtain glory, honor, and immortality that is incorruptible and indestructible. If the first one, praise, means verbal commendation, this means perfection of person. God is not going to give us verbal commendation, not just going to give us verbal commendation. He's going to give us his glory. He is going to endow us with his glory. Jesus Christ, you remember it says in John 1.14, was God incarnate. And it says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was God's glory incarnate. And the Bible says that when we see him, we'll be like him. So we'll possess the glory of God. So we will receive verbal commendation and perfection, eternal glorious perfection of person in Christ's likeness. The third word Peter uses is the word honor. What does he mean by that word? Probably rewards. We're not sure, but probably. If we sort through these, word, these words out, they may really be overlapping synonyms. But if we look for a unique meaning in each, the first is verbal commendation. The second is perfection of person. And the third is rewards. Honor from God given to us because of our service rendered to him. In 1 Peter 4.13, he says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I'm repeating this verse, but I think it's worth repeating. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Rejoice now that in your faithfulness and rejoicing here you will be rewarded by a greater rejoicing at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes. In some sense, our eternal reward is connected to our faithfulness here. We're talking about reward now, not your place in heaven. Make a clear distinction. Your reward is somehow connected to our faithfulness here. We are headed for something, the end of verse 7, <clears throat> to be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is designed to survive to the end. This is an amazing promise we can count on. What encouraging words that Peter wants to give us today. We have a faith that hopes, a faith that is unassailable, protected by divine power, a strength of faith that is only made stronger through trial. We have a proven, tested faith that finds its fulfillment in the purpose and plan of God in a union with the Lord Jesus Christ at his appearing. This goes right back to the reason we were saved in the, in the beginning. We were chosen 
so that we would be brought to eternal glory. We see these promises in 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'd love to talk about that subject all over again. It's so thrilling. You know what the Bible teaches about this, but we <clears throat> we will be like him. We'll have a body like his. We'll have a, we have a heavenly home. He's preparing a place for us. We're just passing through this world. We're not citizens here. Hallelujah. This momentary light affliction <clears throat> that we suffer is not to be compared with that glorious weight of glory that awaits us in his presence. God predetermined then that we would be brought to eternal glory. That is to say, salvation has three dimensions. There is the point at which you believe, there is a process by which you are kept, and there is a final salvation in which you are glorified. And when God predetermined to save you, he predetermined that all three would take place, not just some part of them. That's why in Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Whatever we might suffer here, we rejoice because it shows us we have a real faith and strengthens that faith. And none of that suffering is to be compared with the glory that God has predetermined for us. Hallelujah. One eight. though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Peter returns to the subjects of joy. Here's the climax of the experiential joy that results from faith. God accomplished salvation through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Peter saw the Lord in person. Notice that Peter uses the first person plural in verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ. This statement indicates that Peter had personally seen Jesus. His readers did not, yet they believed in him. In verse 8, he employs a second person plural, though you have not seen him. And also notice the past tense, have not seen him. He contrasts the past tense with the present tense of the parallel statement. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. I love this grammar here. It points out a little bit more of what Peter's talking about. All these points imply that Peter had seen the Lord in person, that he is an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. They also point out that the believers had not seen Jesus and yet believed. Later in the epistle, he explicitly calls himself a witness of Christ's suffering. Because of the time and distance, the recipients of Peter, Peter's letter had not seen Jesus, yet they believed in him. They loved him because of the gospel, just like you and I have the gospel. His, the apostle's warm heart overflowed as he spoke of the love and belief in Christ of those who, unlike himself, did not see Jesus. So there's a lot going on here in this message that Peter's talking about in these few few short words. There are living commentary 
on the Beatitude, Jesus spoke to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, John 20. They love Jesus and put their trust in him, even though they are unable to see him in this earthly life. Peter was celebrating their faith. He was saying, good for you guys. You're believing when I had Jesus to walk with myself. So the focus of the believer's faith is not on abstract knowledge, but on the person of Christ by faith. That's the point that Peter is making here that is so significant. We really do walk by faith and not by sight. And they had done well in the midst of their trial. Peter was humbled that they believed God without seeing him. Imagine an apostle being humbled by the other believers, but it was about faith. Is it possible that the apostles who saw and heard Jesus were of the opinion that their faith in the Lord was not so great as the faith of those who would believe without seeing Jesus? This possibility is real. First, because Peter was present when Jesus spoke the beatitude to Thomas. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. This includes you and me. Scripture says we are blessed because we haven't seen Jesus and yet we believe in in who he is. Second, Peter resorts twice to the use of concessive clauses that in translation begin with the word though, though you have not seen him and though you do not see him now. Third, he stresses a temporal adverb, now. In brief, Peter commends the readers for their faith in Jesus Christ. This is not my own creation, this diagram, but I thought it was a good way to illustrate the point. These two verses, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, depict parallelism and balance. To demonstrate the point, the parallel lines are in separate columns. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And cross on the upper, my upper right. Yeah, your upper right too. How about that? Even though you do not see him, you believe in him. And of course, then crisscross inexpressible joy, filled with inexpressible joy and obtaining both the goal of salvation and the salvation of your souls. It works diagonally and across and down and across. It's quite a unique way of diagramming the verses, but it really is significant. Already in this present life, believers experience indescribable joy. We do not have to wait until we leave this earthly scene. Even now we are filled with joy that is inexpressible and glorious. The emphasis on this part of the verse is on joy that fills the hearts of Christians. A literal translation conveys a concept in both verb and noun. You greatly rejoice with joy. This is the second time in this first epistle that Peter introduces the subject of joy. Peter repeats the words he used earlier, you greatly rejoice. So he said it a second time. So you greatly rejoice is an important phrase that he wanted to get across to the believers. Remember again, going through the horrible tribulation and trials that they were seeing, he said, you greatly rejoice. That doesn't mean like a giddy, oh, let's all just emotionally produce joy. No, it's the inner inner joy that, that we know that we have as believers. The word inexpressible depicts 
shouting for joy that cannot be contained. I love that. This is something that can no longer stay inside, but has to get out and tell everyone. Let me tell you about the joy inside. I can hardly wait. It's the way I feel and many of you feel when, you, when you're sharing your faith with an unbeliever. You want them to experience that joy that you know that you have inside, that peace that says, I know I can go to heaven when I die. Or when they actually do make that choice and they say, yes, I accept Jesus, I, I choose Jesus. Everything else is a distant second. Peter qualifies the noun joy with two unusual adjectives, inexpressible and glorious. Inexpressible is used nowhere else in the New Testament. When Scripture uses a word only once in all of the New Testament, it is truly significant. It's like a treasure that's so special that you only want to uncover it once and make it really stand out and shine. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing with the word inexpressible. Webster defines it as too strong or great to be expressed or described. When you think about going to heaven when this life is over, there is a joy deep down that wants to shout or burst out loud. Imagine having that kind of joy in your life. Actually, I would imagine that many, or if not most of you, have that kind of joy if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You know it is there because there is a deep down satisfaction that can only come from knowing that Christ is in your life. In spite of the trials, turmoil, and tribulation that are happening on a daily basis in our lives, there is a calm peace that really does pass all understanding. It's difficult to express to anyone else who doesn't understand. It's a joy that supersedes everything else in this world. It truly is inexpressible. And the Holy Spirit is using that word to get across a, a powerful point that's in our lives. Joy is truly inexpressible when it's deep down inside and sure. Peter uses it to describe the activity of, of a person who possesses great joy. That person cannot express his joy in human terms. In fact, he copes not with only an inability, but an impossibility to convey the depth of his joy. You have unutterable happiness through believing, and you have the fullest, clearest, strongest evidence of eternal joy. Glory signifies that which continues to be glorified. So this is not just a one-time thing. It connotes the presence of, of heavenly glory that characterizes this particular joy. 2 Corinthians 3.10 says, For indeed what had glory, in this case has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. Jesus Christ surpasses it and gives us that peace. It is full of glory, full of heaven. There is much of heaven and the future glory in the present joys of, of improved Christians. Their faith removes that causes of sorrow and affords the best reasons for joy. Obtaining, one nine, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. To obtain, in the Greek, komizo, to obtain something that is due to a person. In this case, the word signifies that through the work of Christ, the believer obtains salvation. Already in this life, the Christian claims for himself the salvation Christ provides. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Only through the work of Christ, the believer obtains salvation as a result, joy. What do believers obtain? Peter gives them a direct answer. He tells them that they will obtain the goal of their faith. As the New International Version has it, the text actually says the end of your faith. However, if we stop at this point, Peter's answer is deficient. For we need to know what the goal of faith is. Peter, however, completes the sentence by adding the explanatory phrase, the salvation of your souls. The salvations of your souls is the outcome of faith. Hallelujah. Scripture teaches that salvation belongs to us already in principle. We will have full possession when we are with Christ eternally. The wording of 1 Peter 1.9, the salvation of your souls, agrees with the teaching of numerous New Testament passages that our salvation in Christ affects our total life. Christ Jesus saves completely and gives us joy in the journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of encouragement to us that in the midst of our trials, you give us that peace, that joy that only, only you can give us. Father, we just praise you and thank you that you are there with us through the trials and that you really do give us that joy. Thank you, Father. We just, we just worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.